Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Tuesday, February 28, 2023. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other difficult disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald Leader. Your reader for today is Dawn Flickinger. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day. Stultify. S-T-U-L-T-I-F-Y. Stultify. It's a verb. Stultify means to cause someone or something to become dull or ineffective. With a government as stultified by bureaucracy as this as that one, even the simplest records requests can take weeks. Foolish or absurd behavior often makes us laugh. Take the 2006 comedy film Idiocracy, for instance, which depicts the United States in a dystopian future stultified by centuries of anti-intellectualism and crass commercialism. This description of the movie showcases one sense of stultify. To cause to appear to be stupid, foolish, or absurdly, absurdly illogical. But there is nothing especially funny about the now archaic original usage of the word. In mid-1700s legal context, if you stultified yourself, you claim to be of unsound mind and thus not responsible for your actions. Nor is there humor in the most common current meaning of stultify, which refers to rendering someone or something dull or ineffective. Biden's semiconductor plan flexes the power of the federal government by Jim Tankersley and Anna Swanson. Semiconductor manufacturers seeking a slice of nearly $40 billion in new federal subsidies will need to ensure affordable child care for their workers, limit stock buybacks, and share certain access, excess profits with the government, the Biden administration will announce on Tuesday. The new requirements represent an aggressive attempt by the federal government to bend the behavior of corporate America to accomplish its economic and national security objectives. As the Biden administration makes the nation's first big foray into industrial policy in decades, officials are also using the opportunity to advance policies championed by liberals that seek to empower workers. While the moves would advance some of the left-behind portions of the president's agenda, they could also set a fraught precedent for attaching policy strings to federal funding. Last year, a bipartisan group of lawmakers passed the CHIPS Act, which devoted $52 billion to expanding U.S. semiconductor manufacturing and research in hopes of making the nation less reliant on foreign suppliers for critical chips to power computers, household appliances, cars, and more. The prospect of accessing those funds has already enticed domestic and foreign-owned chip makers to announce plans for or begin construction on new projects in Arizona, Texas, Ohio, New York, and other states. On Tuesday, the Commercial Department will release its application for manufacturers seeking funds under the law. It will include a variety of requirements that go far beyond simply encouraging semiconductor production. For example, the department will tell companies seeking awards of $150 million or more to guarantee affordable, high-quality childcare for workers who build or operate a plant. Those projects will also be required 
to share a portion of any unanticipated profits with the federal government. The companies applying for awards will be required to submit detailed financial projections with the federal government entitled to share in any upside profits. The Commerce Department depicted that requirement as a way to encourage companies to make their projections as accurate as possible and not exaggerate any losses to try to secure more funding. Preference will also be given to applicants that promise to refrain from stock buybacks, which tend to enrich shareholders and corporate executives by increasing a company's share price. The law already prohibits companies from directly using federal money to finance stock buybacks or pay dividends. Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, said in an interview that the financial rules would encourage companies to ask only for funding that they really need and prevent them from diverting taxpayer dollars to pad the pockets of their shareholders. We don't want to spend a dollar more than necessary to make these projects happen, she said. The requirements will join a growing list of administration efforts to expand the reach of President Biden's economic policies beyond their primary intent. For instance, administration officials have attached stringent labor standards and Buy American provisions to money from a bipartisan infrastructure law. Companies that receive CHIP subsidies to build new plants will be able to use some of the funding to meet the new child care requirement. That could include building company child care centers near construction sites or new plants, paying local child care providers to add capacity and an affordable cost for workers, directly subsidizing workers, care costs, or other similar steps that would ensure workers have access to care for their children. Other provisions of the program will encourage companies, universities, and other parties to offer more training for American workers in advanced sciences, but also in fields like welding. The program will encourage colleges and universities to triple their graduation of new engineers over the next decade, Ms. Ramondo said in a speech last week, while also offering high-paying jobs to tens of thousands of American workers without four-year college degrees. Ms. Ramondo outlined an ambitious vision for investing in the United States to build a self-propelling engine of innovation and production. The goal of the program, she said, was to create at least two manufacturing clusters for the most cutting-edge chips, as well as factories for older chips. The ultimate aim would be to spur a vibrant semiconductor ecosystem in which every leading global chip company would feel the need to have both research and manufacturing in the United States, she said. In interviews, Ms. Ramondo said the chips requirement requirements would help companies attract women to fill open jobs at a moment when many companies are struggle, struggling with a labor shortage. Chipmakers, Ms. Ramondo said, will not be successful unless you find a way to attract, train, put to work, and retain women, and you won't do that without childcare. The rules for chipmakers come on top of other requirements written into the law, including a ban on certain new investments in China. Under that restriction, chip manufacturers that take U.S. funding cannot make new high-tech investments in China or other countries of concern for at least a decade a prohibition designed to ensure that U.S. taxpayer money does not go toward building operations in China. But analysts have argued that some of these restrictions may be difficult to uphold, 
given that money is fungible and can pass from one part of a company to another outside of public sight. Some Republican and Democratic lawmakers have also questioned the wisdom of giving any taxpayer money to the chip industry, which is generally profitable. Executives have countered that the high cost of operating in the United States and subsidies offered by foreign governments make it cheaper for semiconductor companies to manufacture their products offshore. The next few months will provide the first test of how the Commerce Department balances those concerns. Ms. Raimondo said companies would have to open their books to their team and that the goal would be to try to crowd in private investment rather than canceling it out. According to the funding application, companies that have secured other sources of private capital will receive strong, strong preference for government aid, and applicants will need to have secured some kind of incentive from a state or local government to be eligible for the funding. Commerce officials will prioritize projects linked to state and local incentive programs that create spillover benefits for communities, like investments in workforce, education, or infrastructure, rather than policies that direct tax abatements that benefit loan companies, it said. The rules also seek to address rising concerns among American employers, including manufacturers, that a lack of access to affordable childcare is blocking millions of Americans from looking for work particularly women. Mr. Biden pushed Congress to address those concerns over the past two years, proposing hundreds of billions of dollars for new child care programs, but he was unable to corral support from even a majority of Senate Democrats. But Mr. Biden did persuade lawmakers to approve an assortment of new spending programs seeking to bolster American manufacturing. Now, the Commerce Commerce Department is trying to utilize the centerpiece of those efforts, which aims to expand American semiconductor manufacturing to make at least a small dent in his large goals for the so-called care economy. When it became clear last year that sweeping plans to expand and subsidize child care would not make it into the climate, health, and tax bill, the culmination of Mr. Biden's economic efforts in Congress, Ms. Raimondo gathered aides around a conference table. She told them, she said that if Congress wasn't going to do what they should have done, we're going to do it in implementation of the bills that did pass. America's child care industry is not fully rebounded from the pandemic recession. It is still about 58,000 workers or five percentage points short of its pre-pandemic peak, according to an analysis of Labor Department data by the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at the University of California, Berkeley. Shortly before the pandemic, the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington surveyed 35 states and found more than 11 million children had a potential need for childcare, yet fewer than 8 million slots were available. That shortage is particularly acute in some of the areas where manufacturers are set to begin building new chip plants spurred by the new legislation. Commerce Department officials calculate that in the Syracuse, New York area, where Micron announced a $100 billion chip-making investment last year after Mr. Biden signed the new law, the need for slots in child care facilities is nearly three times the size of the actual care capacity in the region. In Phoenix, where semiconductor manufacturing is booming, child care costs consume about 18% of a typical construction or manufacturing worker's salary. That share is higher than the national average. In a speech last week, Ms. Raimondo called 
Efforts to attract more women to the workforce, a simple question of math for industries complaining of labor shortages. We need chip manufacturers, construction companies, and unions to work with us toward the national goal of hiring and training another million women in construction over the next decade to meet the demand, not just in chips, but other industries and infrastructure projects as well, she said. Only about three in 10 U.S. manufacturing workers are women. Ms. Romando said the CHIPS Act would fail if the administration did not help companies change those numbers by bringing in women who have children. Some American manufacturers have already turned to on-site care facilities to help meet workers' needs. The automaker Toyota has provided 24-hour care at a factory in Kentucky since 1993 and one in Indiana since 2004. Chad Maltre, the director of the Center for Manufacturing Research at the Manufacturing Institute, which is affiliated with the National Association of Manufacturers, wrote in a report late last year that childcare availability is part of the reason women do not seek more jobs in manufacturing. Women represent a sizable talent pool that manufacturers cannot ignore, he wrote. Challenges to Student Loan Cancellation Cancellation Reach Supreme Court by Stacy Cowley. In September, Jason Doreski received a $10,000 direct deposit from the Education Department. It was a refund for payments he had made voluntarily on his federal student loans since March of 2020, when the government told borrower, borrowers that they could stop paying temporarily because of the pandemic. Three years later, those loans are still on hold, and Mr. Doreski, 31, who graduated from the University of Kansas in 2015, still has the money he received sitting in his savings account untouched. He's waiting to find out if he'll have to send it back. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments about President Biden's plan to eliminate up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for most borrowers at an estimated cost of $400 billion. Mr. Biden's plan, announced in August, has been blocked by legal challenges, preventing the government from canceling any debt for the 26 million borrowers who have applied for relief. The White House insists its approach, which bypassed Congress and relies on a 2003 law, the HEROES Act, that allows the Education Secretary to grant relief in times of national emergency, is legally sound. The actions that Mr. Biden has directed Education Secretary Miguel Cardona to take fall comfortably within the plan, plain text of the act, the administration argued in a legal filing to the court. Challengers, including six Republican-led states, call it an abuse of executive authority that seeks breathtaking and transformative power by relying on a tenuous and pretextual connection to a national emergency, according to their legal brief. Caught in limbo are millions of borrowers, like Mr. Doreski, who have swung between hope and despair as Mr. Biden's relief plan was started and then halted. To the people making those decisions, $10,000 is not a lot of money, Mr. Doreski said, but when it's a big part of your actual net worth or savings, it really matters. More than two dozen advocacy groups plan to bus in hundreds of borrowers to rally outside the Supreme Court on Tuesday. The event has aligned labor unions, civil rights organizations, and youth activists with groups as diverse as the Hip Hop Caucus and the National Council of Jewish Women. 
Desiree Vinay, a senior at Morgan State University in Baltimore and the vice president of her campus chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, plans to hit the road before dawn to join the demonstration. A first-generation college student and the second oldest of 10 siblings, Ms. Vinay sees a clear racial justice aspect to Mr. Biden's plan. Black student loan borrowers typically leave school with $25,000 more in debt than white graduates and carry the debt for years longer. It's such a wide gap, Ms. Vinay said. Mr. Biden's plan would cancel $20,000 in debt for those like her who received Pell Grants, which aid students from low-income families. That would wipe out nearly all of Ms. Finney's undergraduate loans, making it easier for her to pursue the master's and PhD degrees she hopes to attain. She aims to become a therapist and work with families and troubled youths. The president's plan would help reduce the racial wealth gap, she said. It would give not only me, but everyone an opportunity to improve our financial security and lay a better foundation for upward economic mobility. Mr. Biden has cast his debt relief plan as an essential step in restarting the student loan collection system that has been frozen for nearly three years. The hiatus began as a two-month pause initiated by President Donald Trump's administration when the pandemic was ravaging the economy. Congress and Mr. Trump extended the hiatus three times and Mr. Biden six more times, most recently in November. The president announced then that borrowers' bills would resume 60 days after the court challenges to his relief plan were resolved or September 1st, whichever came sooner. The piecemeal nature of the moratorium's extensions and the continued uncertainty about when people will actually have to start paying has frustrated both borrowers and the companies that bill them on the government's behalf. Nelnet, the largest federal loan servicer, laid off 350 newly hired employees last month, citing the likelihood that payments would remain paused for most of this year. After such a long time out, getting borrowers to resume paying bills that often total hundreds or thousands of dollars a month will be a psychological hurdle, acknowledged Richard Cordray, the chief operating officer of the Education Department's Federal Student Aid Office. We can expect expect that many, many borrowers will not be eager to return to repayment when they have been led to believe, or even to hope, that was never going to happen, Mr. Cordray said in a speech at an industry conference back in September of 2021. The Education Department has used the long pause to try to clean up some of the $1.6 trillion federal student loan system's biggest failings. A one-time waiver to rules that had become in their complexity let hundreds of thousands of public service workers get $14 billion in loans forgiven. One million borrowers who attended schools that defrauded them had nearly $15 billion in debt eliminated, and loans were automatically discharged for hundreds of thousands of permanently disabled borrowers. More is in the works. The Education Department is preparing a new income-linked repayment plan that would sharply reduce payments for many who borrow for undergraduate studies. It is working on a complex waiver program to be carried out this summer and that will retroactively credit millions of borrowers on income-driven plans with additional payments toward loan forgiveness. 
The agency also plans a fresh start amnesty for the 7 million borrowers, nearly one in every five people with payments due who have defaulted on their loans. All of that becomes easier if the Supreme Court allows Mr. Biden's debt cancellation plan to proceed. The White House estimates that nearly 90% of the nation's 45 million student loan borrowers would qualify for some relief and that 18 million would have their debts fully canceled. The administration's legal cause for wiping out tens of millions of borrowers' loans focuses on the pandemic's lingering effects on the finances of many households. Without debt cancellation, the White House fears many borrowers will be walloped when payments resume, leading to what the Education Department projected could be a historically large increase in defaults and delinquencies. The borrowers most likely to struggle disproportionately come from lower-income households, the families least prepared to weather the public health and economic crisis that gripped the country in 2020. Mike Pierce, the executive director of the Student Borrower Protection Center, said Friday on a call with the White House that arranged for reporters. Critics see that argument as a fig leaf justification by Mr. Biden to achieve through executive order what he has been unable to accomplish legislatively, mass student debt cancellation. Other Americans will have to pick up the tab to the tune of over $2,500 per taxpayer, Dozens of Republican senators wrote in an amicus brief submitted to the Supreme Court. More than half the House's Republicans joined in their own brief, which warned the Supreme Court that if it allowed Mr. Biden's plan to proceed, it is only a matter of when, not if, an education secretary would again invoke such broad student debt cancellation powers. That would be a welcome outcome for Kristen McGuire, the executive director of Young Invincibles, a young adult economic advocacy group that is helping to organize the rally on Tuesday. A first-generation college student, Ms. McGuire defaulted on her loans soon after she graduated in 2005. She carried enormous shame and guilt, she said, viewing it as a personal failing, until she began working as an activist and discovered how common her story was. What I realized is that this is an issue that's impacting millions of people. It's not an isolated incident, she said. We've sat here and we've watched as corporations get bailed out and get debt canceled year after year, every time we have any sort of economic downturn. I really believe it's time for the people to be able to access that type of benefit as well. Murdoch acknowledges Fox News hosts endorsed election fraud falsehoods by Jeremy Peters and Katie Robertson. Rupert Murdoch, chairman of the conservative media empire that owns Fox News, acknowledged on a deposition that several hosts for his networks promoted the false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump and that he could have stopped them but didn't, court documents released on Monday showed. They endorsed, Mr. Murdoch said under oath in response to direct questions about the Fox hosts Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs, and Maria Bartiroma, according to a legal filing by Dominion Voting Systems. I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight, he added, while also disclosing that he was always dubious of Mr. Trump's claims of widespread voter fraud. Asked whether he doubted Mr. Trump, Mr. Murdoch responded, yes, I mean, we thought everything was on the up and up, 
At the same time, he rejected the accusation that Fox News as a whole had endorsed the stolen election, election narrative. Not Fox, he said. No, not Fox. Mr. Murdoch's remarks, which he made last month as part of Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox, added to the evidence that Dominion has accumulated as it tries to prove its central allegation. The people running the country's most popular news network knew Mr. Trump's claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election were false, but broadcast them anyway in a reckless pursuit of ratings and profit. Proof to that effect would help Dominion clear the high legal bar set by the Supreme Court for defamation cases. To prevail, Dominion must show not only that Fox broadcast false information, but that it did so knowingly. A judge in Delaware State Court has scheduled a month-long trial beginning in April. The new documents in a similar batch released this month provide a dramatic account from inside the network, depicting a frantic scramble as Fox tried to woo back its large conservative audience after ratings collapsed in the wake of Mr. Trump's loss. Fox had been the first network to call Arizona for Joseph Biden on election night, essentially declaring him the next president. When Mr. Trump refused to concede and started attacking Fox as disloyal and dishonest, viewers began to change the channel. The filings also revealed that top executives and on-air hosts had reacted with incredulity bordering on contempt to various fictitious allegations about Dominion. These included unsubstantiated rumors, repeatedly uttered by guests and hosts of Fox programs, that its voting machines could run a secret algorithm that switched votes from one candidate to another, and that the company was founded in Venezuela to help that country's longtime leader, Hugo Chavez, fix elections. Despite those misgivings, little changed about the context on shows like Mr. Dobbs and Miss Bartiromas. For weeks after the election, viewers of Fox News and Fox Business heard a far different story from the one that Fox executives privately conceded was real. Lawyers for Fox News, which filed a response to Dominion in court on Monday, argued that its commentary and reporting after the election did not amount to defamation because its hosts had not endorsed the falsehoods about Dominion, even if Mr. Murdoch stated otherwise in his deposition. As such, the network's lawyers argued Ms. Fox's coverage was protected under the First Amendment. Far from reporting the allegations as true, Hosts informed their audiences at every turn that the allegations were just allegations that would need to be proven in court in short order if they were going to impact the outcome of the election, Fox lawyers said in their filing. And to the extent some hosts commented on the allegations, the commentary is independently protected opinion. A Fox News spokeswoman said on Monday in response to the filing that Dominion's case has always been more about what will generate headlines than what can withstand legal scrutiny. She added that the company had taken an extreme, unsupported view of defamation law that would prevent journalists from basic reporting. In certain instances, Fox hosts did present the allegations as unproven and offered their opinions. And Fox lawyers have pointed to exchanges on the air when hosts challenged these claims and pressed Mr. Trump's lawyers, Sidney Powell and Rudolph Giuliani, to present evidence that never materialized. 
but the case is also likely to revolve around questions about what people with the power to shape Fox's on-air content knew about the validity of the fraud allegations as they gave pro-Trump election deniers a platform, often in front of hosts who mustered no pushback. There appears to be a pretty good argument that Fox endorsed the accuracy of what was being said, said Lee Levine, a veteran First Amendment lawyer who has defended major media organizations in defamation cases. He added that Fox's arguments were stronger against some of Dominion's claims than others, but based on what he has seen of the case so far, Mr. Levine said, I'd much rather be in Dominion's shoes than Fox's right now. Dominion's filing cast Mr. Murdoch as a chairman who was both deeply engaged with his senior leadership about coverage of the election and operating at somewhat of a remove and willing to interfere. Asked by Dominion's lawyer, Justin Nelson, whether he could have ordered Fox News to keep Trump lawyers like Ms. Powell and Mr. Giuliani off the air, Mr. Murdoch responded, I could have, but I didn't. The document also described how Paul Ryan, a former Republican Speaker of the House and current member of the Fox Corporation Board of Directors, said in his deposition that he had implored Mr. Murdoch and his son Lachlan, the Chief Executive Officer, that Fox News should not be spreading conspiracy theories. Mr. Ryan suggested instead that the network pivot and move on from Donald Trump and stop spouting election lies. There was some discussion at the highest levels of the company about how to make that pivot, Dominion said. On January 5, 2021, the day before the attack at the Capitol, Mr. Murdoch and Suzanne Scott, the chief executive of Fox News Media, talked about whether Mr. Hannity and his fellow primetime hosts, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, should make it clear to viewers that Mr. Biden had won the election. Mr. Murdoch said in his deposition that he had hoped such a statement would go a long way to stop the Trump myth that the election was stolen. According to the filing, Ms. Scott said of the hosts, privately they are all there, but we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. No statement of that kind was made on the air. Dominion details the close relationship that Fox hosts and executives enjoyed with senior Republican Party officials and members of the Trump inner circle, revealing how at times Fox was shaping the very story it was covering. It describes how Mr. Murdoch placed a call to the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, immediately after the election. In his deposition, Mr. Murdoch testified that during that call, he likely urged Mr. McConnell to ask other senior Republicans to refuse to endorse Mr. Trump's conspiracy theories and baseless claims of fraud. Dominion also describes how Mr. Murdoch provided Mr. Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, with confidential information about ads that the Biden campaign would be running on Fox. At one point, Dominion's lawyers accused Ms. Pirro, who hosted a Saturday evening talk show, of laundering her own conspiracy theories through POW. The filing goes on to say Ms. Pirro bragged to her friends that she was the source for POW's claims. Dominion notes that this was something she never shared with her audience. The filing on Monday included a deposition by Viet Din, Fox Corporation's chief legal officer who was one of the many senior executives cautioning about the content of Fox's coverage. After Mr. Hannity told his audience on November 5, 
2020 that it would be impossible to ever know the true, fair, accurate election results. Mr. Din told a group of senior executives, including Lachlan Murdoch and Miss Scott, Hannity is getting awfully close to the line with his commentary and guests tonight. When asked in his deposition if Fox executives had an obligation to stop hosts of shows from broadcasting lies, Mr. Den said yes to prevent and correct known falsehoods. In their filings on Monday, Fox's lawyers accused Dominion of cherry-picking evidence that some of Fox News knew the allegations against Dominion were not true and therefore acted out of actual malice, the legal standard required to prove defamation. The vast majority of Dominion's evidence comes from individuals who had zero responsibility for the statement's Dominion challenges, the lawyer said. Lawmakers propose legislation to tighten rail safety regulations by Stephanie Lay. Two House Democrats plan on Tuesday to introduce a bill to tighten federal regulation of trains carrying hazardous materials. The first legislative proposal to emerge in Congress since the derailment of a freight train carrying toxic substances that has devastated a small community in Ohio. Representatives Chris Deluzio of Pennsylvania, whose district lies along the Ohio-Pennsylvania border near where the derailment occurred, and Ro Khanna of California are sponsoring the legislation, which would broaden the definition of what is considered a high-hazard flammable train subject to stricter federal safety regulations. The train that derailed this month was exempt from such requirements because it was carrying less hazardous material than the threshold set by the Transportation Department. The prospects for the measure are uncertain in a divided Congress, where the derailment has touched off a highly partisan debate over rail safety, federal regulation, and who, if anyone, in Washington is looking out for the plight of rural communities like East Palestine, Ohio. This month, 38 Norfolk Southern rail cars, 11 of which carried hazardous materials, careened off the tracks there and ignited a huge fire. Officials decided to release and burn toxic materials from the train days later, sending a large plume of toxic smoke into the sky. Residents in the farm town of East Palestine have continued to suffer from the ecological damage. I have people I represent worried about their health, their safety, their livelihoods, and are mad at this railroad and the rail industry in general, Mr. Deluzio said in an interview. So it's important to me and the people I represent that we do what we can to make this industry safer, that we tackle the problem of these dangerous materials and chemicals coming through our communities. The bill's introduction comes as lawmakers in both parties have rushed to respond to the derailment. Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York and the majority leader, on Monday called on the chief executive of Norfolk Southern to testify on Capitol Hill about what went wrong. In the Republican-led House, the Oversight and Accountability Committee has begun an investigation into the Biden administration's handling of the incident, while two other panels, Transportation and Infrastructure, and Energy and Commerce have formally requested information. And six members of Congress who represent the region wrote to Norfolk Southern demanding details of the railroad's operations and the company's plan to clean up contaminated resources. But the legislation by Mr. Deluzio and Mr. Khanna 
is the first bill to be introduced on the matter in Congress. It would lower the threshold for a train to be considered a high-hazard, flammable train. Such trains are required to go no faster than 50 miles per hour and have newer brake braking equipment and special cars when transporting hazardous materials across the country. The Transportation Department currently applies such rules to trains carrying flammable liquids in at least 20 consecutive cars, or 35 cars total. The derailed Ohio train had such substances in three of its cars, well below the threshold to require the additional safety precautions. The legislation would lower the limit to one rail car containing many containing any one of an expanded list of hazardous substances beyond flammable liquids. Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, a Republican, said this month that it was absurd that the derailed train was not considered a high-hazard flammable train, calling on Congress to take action. A report released last week by the National Transportation Safety Board found that the crew of the train was alerted about an overheating wheel bearing only moments before some of the train's cars left the tracks. The safety board's chairwoman said in an interview on Thursday that any recommendation from the board would most likely require action by Congress or the railroad companies. While East Palestine represented, Mr. Connor said in an interview, was people who have been shafted by globalization who are now suffering, yet again because of the greed over railroads. This is something concrete that we can do to hold them accountable and to address the wrongs of what happened. The measure would also mandate that rail carriers report to the Federal National Response Center, state officials and local officials, within 24 hours when a train carrying toxic chemicals derails. The bill mirrors some recommendations that the National Transportation Safety Board proposed in 2014. The Obama administration adopted a rule that required high-hazard flammable trains to upgrade their braking systems by 2023 but it was repealed by the Trump administration after transportation department officials reported that the costs outweighed the value of the mandate. Musk claims media bias in debate over Dilbert Creator's racist rant by Laura Kelly, Michael Greenbaum, and Tiffany Hsu. Last fall, shortly after completing his purchase of Twitter, Elon Musk sent a message to a skittish corporate community, trust me. Twitter aspires to be the most respected advertising platform in the world, Mr. Musk wrote in an open letter, contrasting himself with the so-called traditional news media that in his telling had fueled societal divides in the pursuit of profit. On Sunday, Mr. Musk leaped to the defense of the Dilbert cartoonist, Scott Adams, whose career has been upended in recent days after he called black people a hate group and urged white people to just get the hell away from them during a YouTube live stream. Mr. Musk, no fan of major news organizations, then appeared to criticize the hundreds of newspapers that have since dropped Dilbert from their pages, asserting the media is racist. It was another example of Mr. Musk blithely inserting himself into the sort of incendiary situation that most chief executives would run away from, and it built on his history of attacking what he views as a misguided commitment to diversity by the political left, which Mr. Musk, in line with some conservatives, sees as itself a form of discrimination. 
In linking a scandal over a cartoonist racist remarks to a critique of the news media, Mr. Musk, 51, also reiterated his contempt for mainstream journalists. The billionaire often denounces major news outlets for censoring alternative viewpoints, even as he temporarily barred some of the journalists who cover his companies from Twitter last year. The frenetic, provocative, and sometimes contradictory tenor of Mr. Musk's public remarks has won the Twitter and Tesla leader millions of fans. Twitter's advertisers may have a dimmer view, questioning the stability of his leadership as the social media company struggles financially. He's playing a version of fantasy CEO around Twitter without any real expertise or commitment to dealing with the complications, said Rashad Robinson, the president of the civil rights organization Color of Change, one of the groups that met with Mr. Musk last year to discuss Twitter's handling of problematic and offensive posts. Mr. Robinson said Mr. Musk's behavior had left Twitter advertisers in a bind. These companies with their diversity programs are all saying things that are in direct opposition to what Elon Musk is saying, he said in an interview. These companies actually have a really good opportunity to leave both as a moral decision and as a business decision. Mr. Musk did not respond to requests for comment. He has called himself a free speech absolutionist and he offered amnesty to thousands of suspended Twitter users last year. Researchers found that within months of his takeover of the service, slurs against black Americans and other minority groups surged on the platform. Mr. Musk has denied claims that hate speech on Twitter has increased under his ownership. Mr. Adams in a text message wrote, I didn't see Musk's comment as supporting me so much as saying something needs to be fixed. Representatives for several Twitter advertisers did not respond to requests for comment on Monday, but the episode left some Madison Avenue executives privately shaking their heads. In recent weeks, Twitter seemed to take, make headway in persuading some brands to return to its platform. Mark Reed, the chief executive of WPP, one of the world's largest ad companies, told Bloomberg TV last week that Twitter appeared a lot more stable the last few months than perhaps it was toward the end of last year, he added. I think clients want to start to look about how they can come back into Twitter. That's great to hear, Mr. Musk tweeted in response. WPP declined to comment on Monday. Hundreds of newspapers, including USA Today, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and the international edition of the New York Times said they would stop running the syndicated Dilbert comic strip in response to Mr. Adams' rant. Mr. Musk seemed to respond by criticizing the papers for abandoning Mr. Adams, a view in line with his usual concerns about censorship of alternative viewpoints. For a very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians, Mr. Musk tweeted on Sunday. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. Maybe they can try not being racist. Mr. Musk later seemed to approve of a Twitter user's comment that Adams's comments weren't good, but there's an element of truth to this. It's complicated. Exactly, Mr. Musk replied. Jonathan Greenblatt, the chief executive of the Anti-Defamation League, said on Monday that he was deeply disturbed by Mr. Musk's comments. As the prominent leader of a social media platform, he said, Musk's words can't
carry great influence, and he should be condemning bigotry, not defending it. Twitter had faced an exodus of advertisers since Mr. Musk signaled early in his tenure that he would loosen its content moderation rules. Some brands sharply curtailed their spending. More than half of Twitter's top 100 advertisers from last year have not spent anything on the platform in 2023, according to recent estimates from the research firm Sensor Tower. At first, Mr. Musk sought to reach out to some critics. He met with leaders from several civil rights groups, including the NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League, in early November, and some of the attendees described Mr. Musk as receptive to their feedback. He also spoke with advertising executives to assuage their concerns that their brands would start appearing alongside toxic material on the platform. Mr. Robinson of Color of Change said Mr. Musk had pledged to form a council, which would include leaders of civil rights groups to help advise Twitter on how to handle tricky content issues. Months later, the council has not materialized. Twitter has also laid off thousands of employees, including at least another 200 over the weekend, as Mr. Musk continues to publicly espouse his views on a dizzying number of matters via his tweets. His attention flits from pop culture to tech innovations to occasionally what he happens to be watching on TV. Rewatching Step Brothers, so good, Mr. Musk wrote on Sunday evening, referring to the slapstick comedy with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. And hours after he had weighed in on Mr. Adams' racist rant, Mr. Musk replied to a Twitter post featuring a video of the industrial process that mass produces pretzels. Damn, he commented, that machine makes a lot of pretzels. Why am I so congested all the time? Seasonal allergies, pet dander, temperature changes, and sinus infections are just a few potential triggers for this common problem. Here's what experts say can help by Danny Bloom. What is the best way to treat chronic congestion? It's more than a sniffle. Your nose gets clogged, stays clogged, and then whistles or hisses when you breathe. Your face aches. You blow through box after box of tissues. It just won't go away. Chronic congestion is common, said Dr. Mark Dukowicz, an allergist and immunologist at St. Louis University School of Medicine. But treating it can get complicated in part because there are so many potential causes. Here's what to know. Why am I so stuffed up? There are many potential triggers for nasal congestion, including household and workplace irritants, allergies, and upper respiratory infections. The anatomy of your nose could also be a culprit, Dr. Dekowitz added. Some people are born with or develop a deviated septum in which the thin wall of cartilage and bone that separates the right and left nasal passage is off-center. That makes one nasal passage larger than the other, and the smaller side can get stuffed up easily. Some people also become congested when the septum and nearby structures weaken and start to cave in over time, or when the turbinates, small bony plates inside the nose that cleanse, heat, and humidify the air you breathe in, become enlarged, he added. Seasonal allergies are one obvious source of congestion, especially if you have watery, itchy eyes in addition to a runny nose and you're also sneezing. But other kinds of environmental allergies can gunk up your nose year-round, too, said Dr. Sarah Hockman, an assistant professor of medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. 
Pet hair, dander, saliva, and urine can enlarge and inflame the soft tissues in your nose, causing congestion, as can dust mites. And everyday irritants like perfumes, car exhausts, and cigarette smoke can cause your noses to re react. Viral infections like the common cold, flu, and COVID-19 can also lead to congestion, as can viral pneumonia. Other factors include temperature and humidity changes, though some people have chronic inflammation with no known cause. If your nose is persistently blocked for longer than two weeks, and especially after you have a cold, you may have a sinus infection. Other telltale signs of a sinus infection include earaches, fever, and pain when you touch your cheeks. If you have sinus congestion and your face or forehead also hurts when you lean over, that could be another sign of a sinus infection and you should seek medical care. Congestion can also be a surprising byproduct of some medications, including Viagra and some blood pressure lowering ACE inhibitor drugs. So if you're grappling with chronic congestion, it's important to look up the potential side effects of any medications or supplements you may be taking and consult with your prescribing doctor. How to clear up congestion. It may sound simple, but first try clearing out your nose as much as possible by gently blowing into a tissue. You can, also, you can use an over-the-counter saline nasal spray to help irrigate your nasal passages two or three times a day. It's also important to stay hydrated, as fluids can help thin the mucus in your nose, allowing it to drain more easily. A steamy shower can help open up your nasal passages, too. Certain over-the-counter medications may help combat congestion, although many come with caveats. If allergies are the root cause of your congestion, your doctor may recommend an oral antihistamine such as cetirizine, Zyrtec, or fexofenadine, Allegra, for mild symptoms. Most antihistamines are safe to take in the long term, but if you are going to use them for more than a week or two, you should consult a doctor. For more severe symptoms, medicated nasal sprays may help, but some are safer for long-term use than others. Steroid nasal sprays that contain active ingredients like fluticasone, Flonase, triamisolone, Nasacort, or Budasonide are safe to use for as long as you need them. No problem, you can use those ad infinitum. But nasal sprays that contain decongestants like oxymetazolone, Afrin, or phenylephrine, Neo should be used for no longer than three to five days or you risk what doctors call rebound congestion. These medications cause your blood vessels to constrict, opening up your nose for a brief period or of relief, but then if used repeatedly, the mucosal surfaces in your nose could swell and some people end up feeling worse than before. There is some risk that after long-term use of these nasal sprays, Swelling could become persistent and require additional treatment, such as with steroids. The nose gets stuffier and stuffier. People become de facto addicted to it. If chronic congestion is interfering with your daily life, you should seek care from an ear, nose, and throat doctor who can investigate whether your nose has a structural issue or whether you have something like a chronic sinus infection. Everyone has a different threshold above what they can take but they can't take it anymore. Teens are struggling right now. What can parents do? By Melinda 
Moyer. For over 25 years, the psychologist Lisa DeMoore has been helping teens and their families navigate adolescence in her clinical practice. In her research and in best-selling books like Untangled, guiding teenage girls through the seven transitions into adulthood. This moment in time, she says, is like no other. According to a report released last week by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 42% of U.S. high schoolers experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2021, while 22% seriously considered attempting suicide. Adolescent girls, as well as lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth are struggling the most. But boys and teens in every racial and ethnic group also reported worsening symptoms. I am deeply concerned about the suffering teens experienced during the pandemic and the current crisis in adolescent mental health, Dr. Demore said. In her new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Dr. Demore aims to demystify adolescence and to reset the very definition of mental health. Too often, mental health is equated with feeling good, happy, calm, or relaxed, she said. But it's about having feelings that fit the moment, even if those feelings are unwanted or painful, and managing them in effective ways. She thinks this characterization is far more accurate, and she hopes reassuring. Here's what Dr. DeMora had to say about communicating with teens, distinguishing healthy emotions from mental illness, and when to step in to help. It's normal for teens to have big, tumultuous feelings, but given that we're in the middle of an adolescent mental crisis, how can parents tell the difference between healthy teen angst and signs of anxiety or depression? Teenagers feel their emotions more intensely than children do, and more intensely than adults do, so there will be plenty of days where they experience distress, maybe multiple times a day. Most of that distress will probably be appropriate to their circumstances. If a teenager failed a test, we expect they'll be upset about that. If somebody breaks up with them, we expect they will be very sad. What we're interested in is how the teenager then goes on to manage their feelings. What we want to see is that they use strategies that bring relief and do not harm, such as talking to people who care about them, finding brief distractions, or solving the problem. What we don't want to see, and where we become alert to the possibility of a mental health concern, is one of two things. One, teenagers are using strategies to bring relief that actually come at a cost. So a teenager who's very distressed and then smokes a lot of marijuana, or a teenager who's having a hard time with a friend and then goes after that peer on social media. The other thing we don't want to see is feelings running the show when they get in the way of a young person's ability to do the things they need to do, such as go to school or spend time with peers. If a teen comes home from school and seems sad or angry, what's the best way for an adult to respond? Usually all they need from us are two things. One is curiosity, to take an interest in what they're sharing, to ask questions. The other is empathy, letting them know that we're sorry that they feel that way. We have excellent scientific evidence that the mere act of putting an unwanted feeling into words reduces the sting of that emotion. So when it's 9 p.m. at night and your teenager is standing in front of you suddenly describing what they are feeling very anxious or unhappy or frustrated, the most essential thing to remember is that they are already on their way to feeling better because they put those emotions into words. 
The exercise I use in my own home is that I imagine that my teenager is a reporter and I'm an editor. My teenager is reading me her latest article. My job is to listen so intently that she comes to the end of the draft. I can produce a headline. The headline being a distilled, accurate summary of what she said that doesn't introduce any new ideas, that shows them that they're listening and validates their feelings. What if your teen says something cruel to you? It is perfectly fine for kids to be angry. We should expect that and plan for it. What we do put parameters around is the expression of that anger. When teenagers are use hurtful language, it can be useful to respond in a way that uncouples the feeling from how it was expressed. We can say things along the lines of, you may be very angry with me, and you probably have a point, but we don't speak to each other that way, so take a minute and bring it back to me in a more civil way. Even if a teen rolls her eyes, she'll get the message, and hopefully try again when she's cooled off. Let's say a teen gets really upset and doesn't want to talk about it, and then 20 minutes later seems perfectly fine. Should you try to broach a conversation then? If a kid is in a bad mood and has found their way to a good mood, I would leave it. Time works differently for teenagers than it does for adults. It's very common that a teenager who was deeply distressed about something at 4 p.m. can be gleeful by 6 p.m. They can be very, very upset about something, but then if a piece of good news comes their way, it can boost their spirits tremendously. This concludes the reading of the New York Times for today. Your reader for today has been Dawn Flickinger. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at area code 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio Eye.